Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, hello everyone. This is uh, Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God uh, Biblical Instructional Program. Uh, today is um, June 4th, 2011. The time is 9.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And for those in California, it's 6 o'clock. Uh, thank you for listening, if you are listening. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to announce that I had just um, formed a meetup group. And if, for those who aren't familiar with meetup, it's a social media tool for people to meet at a specific location anywhere across the world, I guess, and the United States. Anyway, I just uh, created a meetup group called the Merciful Servants of God Meetup Group. And for those that are in the Columbus, Ohio, Reynoldsburg, Ohio area, uh, in most cases, uh, we'll be meeting uh, at um, Blacklick uh, Park here. Let me pull this up here because I don't even let's see. Yeah, uh, we'll have Bible study and fellowship in the beautiful um, Blacklick Woods Metro Park. It's located uh, 6975 East Levinston Avenue in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. So for those who are in the Ohio area, or if you're visiting, and if you want to come meet us personally, uh, you can do that at uh, Blacklick Woods uh, Metro Park, uh, 6975 East Livingston Avenue, Reynoldsburg, Ohio. So if you want to go ahead and join the meetup group, go ahead and do that. Go to meetup.com, and uh, you will get alerts and uh, notifications of when uh, we'll be meeting. Uh, we may be going someplace else next Saturday, God willing, but if not, we will continue to to meet there. Of course, uh, the weather being, it has to be summer-like weather and spring-like weather. In the fall, we're going to have to figure out where we're going to meet um, later on, but uh, right now, since the weather's okay, we can meet out in the open. So I just wanted to say that, and... Uh, crazy things going on in the world as usual, uh, the um, labor, United States Department of Labor, just reported that we had a very low amount of people uh, obtaining jobs. I think it was around 54, 55,000. So that, that definitely was not something that uh, economists and also uh, business owners uh, was expecting, or they didn't like it anyway. So 
But as to be expected, folks, uh, this economy is not recovering. Please don't believe the Obama administration or any other administration telling you that uh, is, is not recovering. A recovery is when people, uh, when, when you don't have over uh, 44 million people right now that need food stamps. Uh, a recovery is when you don't have the world's uh, richest country being the, the world's uh, unequal or we have the, the the world's unequal, most unequal population in, of inequality. In other words, uh, you have many people who are rich uh, using the majority of resources and, and monies in this country, and then you have the middle class and you have the poor that that they really use only a small percentage. So that is where we're at right now, and it's not going to get any better unless uh, we repent. Uh, of um, number one, trying to get Israel to, to give up their land to the Palestinians that God told them is theirs. Uh, every time we do that, bad things happen to us uh, with these weather disturbances and everything, and that's going to continue on. Um, and it, we, we must understand that there's consequences. Uh, there's a book, too. Let me pull this website up here. There's a book that I recommend you get. It's called, yeah, Eye to Eye. It's called Eye to Eye by William Koenig. I hope that's how you pronounce his last name, K-O-E-N-I-G. Um, you know, just a uh, matter of fact, I just typed his website, an interesting headline here. It says, Pope Benedict read the Bible about God's recognized borders. Vatican calls for independent Palestinian state soon. <laughs> So I don't know if he's read the Bible. Uh, it, says, uh, it says Pope Benedict uh, the 16th, right, meets P PA or Palestinian President Abbas at Vatican says it's urgent that, pa that Palestinian state Israel live in security at peace with neighbors. The Vatican on Friday called urgency for a just and lasting peace between peace between Israel and the Palestinians, which is said can be brought about through the through an ind independent Palestinian state. Soon the state of Israel and the Palestinian state must live in security and peace with their neighbors and within internationally recognized borders. The Vatican said in a statement issued following a meeting between Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and Pope Benedict XVI at the Vatican. Joel 3, verse 2 states this, I will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, this is what God does not want. He does not want his land parted. And here, Mr. Big Shot Pope, and that's all he is, a big shot, as far as I'm concerned, because as far as God is concerned, he's not the leader of anything other than um, deception. But uh, for him to say that, uh, he said he's read the Bible. Obviously, he doesn't understand what he read. He says uh, the Holy See. He's not a Holy See. He's an unholy See added that any solution to the conflict must be capable of ensuring respect for the rights of all, calling the current situation troubled. Abbas, who was in Italy, exchanged gifts with the Pope, with whom he also discussed the situation of Christians in the Palestinian territories as well as the Middle East. Late last year, the Vatican blamed the flight of Christians from the Middle East on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, saying that the exodus could be devastating for the birthplace of Christianity. Some bishops who took place in a special meeting blame fanatical Islam for the trend, but others accuse Israel of discriminating against Arab Christians. 
So this is an interesting development, folks, but um, we got to understand that, that God gave that land to the Jews in, in Israel. And when everyone, whenever someone tries to say, no, God, you don't know what you're talking about, I don't believe what you're talking about, and uh, we want to do what we want to do, then bad things happen. So uh, I'm trying to turn to the scripture here. Here we go. Uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant or agreement with you, and you shall make no agreement with the inhabitants of this land. Does, does the Pope read this? Does he read what God says here? He says, plainly, you shall make no covenant or agreement with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Now, have they broke down those Muslim mosques? No. And God commands them to do that. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. And that's what they are today. And, the, and their God shall be a snare to you, and that's what they are today. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lift up their voices and wept, and that's what they're going to be doing today. Thus says the Lord. They are going to be weeping. They will soon be weeping because they refuse, refuse to obey what God has always told them, even in the days of the judges. The judges are considered part of the prophetic books. It's prophecy, folks. Obama needs to start mucking around and start obeying what God says. Now, I respect his position, but I do not respect him going against the great God. When he does that, I'll go where God says, not what Obama says. In this country, we as a nation seem to always want to embrace God, but we don't want to obey what God says. And the Jews are just as guilty. Even though they claim to obey the Torah, they don't don't obey the entire Torah because they allow their oral traditions to make them misinterpreted. Even though they do understand the Bible better than most Christians, I would have to say. But the problem with them is that they deny the Messiah. Now, there are a few Jews that do have woken up between 300 to 600,000 worldwide, and they understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Thank God for that. And there will be more, as Zechariah 12 to Zechariah chapter 14 explains. If you want to read that, I encourage you to do so, to understand um, that the Jews, the majority of them, will repent and realize that Yeshua is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, and that Jesus, with the saints, will land his foot or his two feet on the Mount of Olives and will begin to rule this world and bring peace to this world. That's what will happen. So anyway, this so-called leader of the Christian church doesn't know what the crap he's talking about. And I'm going to say crap because that's exactly what it is. And I'm just sick and tired of hearing people that claim to be religious and they don't know what they're, they don't know what they're talking about. He's read the Bible. Yeah, obviously he doesn't believe it. So anyway, getting back to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to continue on with Numbers, 
chapter 4, verse 21 to number 7, verse 89. You know, it's a real simple solution for Jews. And unfortunately, there's going to be another war, just like it was another war in 1967. And what happened? The Jews were able to get Jerusalem, right? But they went out and they did not uh, take over possession of the Temple Mount because they were afraid. You know, well, you know who was afraid back then? You know who was afraid back then? It was it was the uh, Muslims that were afraid of the Jews, and they didn't take advantage of that. So I'm sure God wasn't pleased with that, and he allowed that to happen. There's going to be another war, folks. Jesus has predicted it. It's in Matthew chapter 24. Nation shall rise against, or it's, uh, it really should be family against family, kingdom against kingdom. And, of course, when that war occurs, then the Jews will do what they're supposed to do. They will build the temple and so forth. That's prophesied all to happen in Matthew chapter 24, and in particular, Matthew 24, verse 15, when Jesus states that there will be an abomination of desolation, and he tells you to go to Daniel. Uh, he's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Let, let him who read it understand. So what he's telling you basically is go to Daniel, and then what's linked with Daniel is Maccabees, which is not a part of Scripture, but is history. It helps you to understand what the abomination of desolation is. I know people got their many theories about what they think it is, but the Bible tells you what it is, and in particular, history tells you what it is. The abomination of desolation is putting an idol or statue in the temple of God. That's the abomination. And that's going to occur in the future, and Revelation chapter 13 explains that in detail, that that will occur. There will be an image put and this image is going to miraculously speak, or it's going to do something to, to, to think, to make people think that is God. That is what. That's why it's called the abomination, because that's an abomination of desolation, and that abomination will cause desolation. Okay, and that's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, verse 15. Okay, so let's uh, see Numbers chapter 4, starting at verse 21. Numbers chapter 4, verse 21. And I call the title of this, The Completion of the Headcount. And, uh, of course, it talks about the wayward wife, and we're going to talk about that as well. Okay, Numbers chapter 4, starting at verse 21. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their fathers' houses and by their clans. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, you shall list them, all who can come to do duty, to do service in a tent of meeting. This is the service of the clans of the Gershonites, in serving and bearing burdens. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and a tent of meeting with its covering and the covering of goatskin that is on top of it and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting. Tent of Meeting was the original temple. It was just, a, um, I mean, the tabernacle, rather. And then uh, part of the tabernacle was the Tent of Meeting. And the hangings of the court and the screen of the entrance of the gate of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords and all the equipment for their service. And they shall do all the needs to be done with regard to them. All the service of the sons of Gershonites shall be at the command of Aaron and his sons and all that they are to carry and in all that they have to do. And you shall assign to their charge all they that are to carry. 
This is the service of the clans of the sons of the Gershonites in attendant meeting, and their guard duty is to be under the direction of Ethamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Oh, let me read this summary first so you can really understand what this is talking about. All right, the summary of Numbers 4, verse 21, uh, chapter 7, verse 89, courtesy of Chabad.org. Completing the head count of the children of Israel taken in the Sinai Desert, a total of 8,580 Levite men between the ages of 30 and 50, that's what I'm reading now, are counted in a tally of those who will be doing the actual work of transporting the tabernacle. God communicates to Moses the law of Sotah, the wayward wife, suspected of unfaithfulness to her husband. Also given is the law of Nazar, who forswears wine, lest his or hair grow long, and is forbidden to become contaminated through contact with a dead body. Aaron and his descendants of Kohanim, or priests, are instructed on how to bless the people of Israel. The leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel each bring their offerings for the inauguration of the, of the altar. Although their gifts are identical, each is bought on a different day and is individually described by the Torah. Okay, so that's the summary of what we're going to read here. All right, uh, Numbers 4, verse 27. All the servants of the sons of Gershonites shall be at the command of Aaron and his sons, and all that they are to carry and all that they have to do. And you shall assign to their charge all that they are to carry. This is the service of the clans of the sons of the Gershonites. And attend a meeting, and their guard duty is to be under the direction of Edmar, the son of Aaron the priest. Verse 29. As for the sons of Merai, you shall list them by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old. You shall list them, everyone who came on duty to do the service of the tent of meeting. And this is what they are charged to carry as the whole of their service in the tent of meeting, the frames of the tabernacle with its bars, pillars, and bases, and the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, with all their equipment and all their accessories. And you shall list by name and the objects that they are required to carry. This is the service of the clans of the sons of Merai, the whole of their service in the tent of meeting, under the direction of Itmar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of the congregation listed the sons of the Kohanites, Kohathites, by their clans and their fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting. And those listed by clans were 2,750. This was the list of the clans of the Kohathites, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord by Moses. Those listed of the sons of Gershon by their clans and their fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in a tent of meeting. Those listed by their clans and their fathers' houses were 2,630. This was the list of the clans of the sons of Gershon, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord. Those listed of the clans of the sons of Merai by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in a tent of meeting. Those listed by clans were 3,200. This was the list of the clans of the sons of Merai, who Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord by Moses. All those who were listed of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of Israel listed by their clans and their fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come to, the, to the, do the service of the ministry and the service of bearing burdens in the tent of meeting. Those listed were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were listed 
each one with his task of serving or caring. Thus, they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp every, everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. You know, God is a God of organization, and he's a God of cleanliness. He, he wants things to be clean, and this is his laws on how to do that. Verse 3. Uh, verse 4, rather. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so that the people of Israel did. Uh, verse 5, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. And that person realizes his guilt. He shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding to a fifth, to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. That's only fair. Verse 8, But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution of all the holy donations of the people of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. And of course, uh, the spiritual priests of today are the, the Levites, the spiritual Levites, uh, folks like me and other people who are preaching uh, the Torah. And uh, even though I don't ask repeatedly for donations, uh, if someone gave to me, I wouldn't give it back to them unless I felt it was uh, harming that person who gave me. Uh, so, But this is something that someone should do. And this is taught in the New Testament as well, uh, or should I call it the, uh, well, I will call it the Renewed Covenant Scriptures, uh, that uh, if you are being taught by somebody who is preaching to you, you should uh, provide them uh, with their needs. Uh, not a lot of money, but you know, food, clothes, and, or money to get those things. Um, and Paul stated that if you have those things, uh, food and clothes, you should be content. So anyway, uh, verse 11 of Numbers chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she, and she is undetected through she has defiled, and she is undetected though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, and rightly so, for doing something like that, um, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her a tenth of, of an epop of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, and put no frankincense on it, for it is a, it is a grain offering of jealousy a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Verse 10, or 16, rather. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel. And that's where the Catholic Church got the concept of holy water, by the way. Everything is, every religious thing has come from the children of Israel, folks. Uh, and that is the truth. 
Anyway, that's why Christ says salvations of the Jews in John 4, verse 22. Uh, Numbers 5, verse 18. And the priest shall set the, the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of a woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings a curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man is lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority. Now, women, I hope you don't cringe uh, by that statement, but you should be under your husband's authority. Okay? So that's pretty plain. You, you, a woman should be under her woman, uh, under her husband's authority. Be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man or other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body smell. Woo. That is a curse, isn't it? But a deserved curse for any woman doing that or man. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Verse 23, Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall weigh the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell. In other words, she won't be able to have babies. And her thighs shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. Verse 29. This is the law in cases of jealousy when a wife, though under her husband's authority, which means she should be under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Oh, when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife. Then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. So this this is a pretty interesting law, folks. Folks, uh, when a wife does this to her husband, uh, God takes this very seriously. And he doesn't have a law like this for, for a man, but for a woman, so... This must be a pre uh, something that was going on um, maybe frequently or more often than not enough for him to put in the law of Moses, which is the law of God in here, that a woman should not commit adultery. And you can look at this spiritually as well. So uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When... Either a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. 
All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair grow long. This is the only case that I know that God approves of a man having long hair uh, under a Nazarite vow. Verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for a brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Verse 9, and if a man dies very suddenly beside him and defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on that day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be bought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering. And that really symbolizes Yeshua, the male lamb a year old without blemish. And one old lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. And a basket of unleavened bread, Loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil and a grain offering and their drink offering. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer his grain offering and his drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer. I'm getting hungry here. Anyway. And shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his... Oh, he gets a meal after this. <laughs> this is interesting. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest together with the breast that is uh, weighed and, and the thigh that is contributed. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Where actually the priest gets a meal here. Verse 20, this is the law of the Nazarite, but if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. Okay, so that's interesting. Verse 22, and the Lord, I have to see whether or not the Nazarite participates in this meal too. I know the priest does. So. But anyway, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless and keep you. This is a very popular prayer in Judaism, which is definitely in line with the Bible. It says uh, in verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. And blessing means you, you wish well. You wish good things to happen to people. The Lord bless and keep you, which means protect you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or face upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them and wish them well. That's what that means. Okay, so where are we at here? Um, 89 verses, yeah, I guess so. Okay, um, I'm going to read this whole chapter here. 
Now, you guys, I know you listen to me, you look at movies, you're probably going to fly off to look at the latest X-Men movie, and I think that's probably about a couple of hours. So uh, if you're going to do that and waste your time, basically, do that and money, uh, you might as well listen to this Bible study, okay? That's going to do you a whole lot more good than a fantasy Magneto and whatever the other ball-headed guy's name, whatever his name is, what is it, what his name, Professor X, whatever. All right, anyway, Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated with, with all his furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all his utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of the fathers' houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord. Six wagons, I don't know if this is talking about wagons of the day, but anyway, and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept those from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merai according to their service under the direction of Idmar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Koath, he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the, to, of the altar on the day it was anointed, and the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashan, the son of Ammonab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. One silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of in incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male lambs, and five male lambs a year old. This is the offering of Nashan, the son of Amadab. And this is, you know, this is something, a key thing throughout as far as the sacrifices and offerings. Is, is It was God's way of really getting us to be used to giving, the giving of, of valuable resources to him and to the priests. And, it, and it's really to teach us as, hold your place here, Hebrews 13, again. This is an excellent scripture to understand that really the meaning of the sacrifices. Sure, people will say, well, that represents sacrifice of Christ, yes, but also it represents something else as well, and people really aren't taught that, what they should be taught here these days as far as uh, religion is concerned. But anyway, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 15, it says, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that's what they were doing here. They were sacrificing things, okay, and sharing things. And that's what the, the, the sacrifices and offerings encourage us to do and train us to do. Okay. In verse 18 of Numbers. On the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar, made an offering. He offered for his offering one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. And these offerings weren't, uh, they were valuable offerings. 
put it that way. And God wants us to give the best that we can. Uh, verse 20, one golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb of year old, for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five uh, male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. On the third day, Eliab, the son of Helan, the chief of the people of Zebulun, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense. That's where the Catholic Church also got the idea of incense from the Jews, from the children of Israel. Uh, which Jews are, are one tribe of the Israel of the children of Israel. There's twelve tribes, and Judah consists of the Jews. Anyway, one these were the Levites that were doing this, by the way, in this chapter. One male goat for a sin offering, um, the tribe of Levi. One male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Eliab, the son of Helian. The on the fourth day, Eleazar, the son of Shediar, the chief of the people of Reuben, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. So his weight was 130 shekels. One silver basin of 70 shekels. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish and ten shekels full of incense. One bull from the herd. One ram. One male lamb a year old for a burnt offering. One male Go for a sin offering and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elazar, the son of Shedir. On the fifth day, Shilumio, the son of Zerushadai, the chief of the people of Zimian, or Simeon, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish of ten shekels full of incense. One bull from the herd. One ram, one male lamb, a year old for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five rams. Five male goats and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of she Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. On the sixth day, Elasaf, the son of Duel, the chief of the people of Gad, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. You know, God is recording this for a reason. He wants us to know this. One silver basin of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, uh, a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This is the offering of Elasaf, the son of Duel. God is very organized here. On the seventh day, Elishna, Shama, the son of Amahad, the chief of the people of Ephraim, or Ephraim, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from one herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Elishama, the son of Amahad. On the eighth day, Gamaliel, Gamaliel the son of Pudazar, the chief of the people of Manasseh, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. 
one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from one herd, one ram, one lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, one male for a sin offering for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. On the ninth day, Abaddon, the son of Gideon, the chief of the people of Benjamin, his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. Is it the same offering for each one of these? I think it is, isn't it? Yep. Pretty much the same. They offered the same thing. So I guess we don't have to read all the rest of this. Um, and then verse 84. Yeah. They offered the same thing. So they all offered the same thing. Um, verse 71. Azir, the son of Amishadai. And then um, this was the offering of Pego, the son of Orkran. And then in verse 83, uh, this was the offering of Ira, the son of Ena. Verse, okay, verse 84. This was the dedication offering for the altar in the day that it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel. Twelve silver plates, twelve silver blazes, twelve golden dishes, each silver plate weighing 130 shekels, and each basin 70. All the silver of the vessels, 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The twelve golden dishes full of incense, weighing ten shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the dishes being 120 shekels. All the cattle for the burnt offering, twelve bulls, twelve rams. Twelve male lambs a year old with their grain offering, and twelve male goats for a sin offering, and all the cattle for the sacrifice of peace offering, twenty-four bulls, the rams, sixty, the male goats, sixty, the male lambs a year old, sixty. This was a dedication offering for the altar. It was anointed. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he uh, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. That was the ark of the testimony between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. All right, so I know that was a long, lengthy uh, part, but that's, you know, the Bible is almost, a, I think it's a 2,000-page book, so it's pretty lengthy. All right, now we're going to go to the Hattara section or the uh, the prophet section of the scriptures. Uh, let's turn to, uh, this is the story of the the true Hercules, uh, which is, uh, his name is Samson. So there was a Hercules-type figure, and he was super strong. Uh, Judges, chapter 13. Samson, and he took a Nazarite vow. Samson, Judges, chapter 13. And this is pretty interesting in in reference to the husband and wife uh, authority thing here. So, uh, Judges, uh, chapter 13, beginning in verse 2. In verse 1, I'll begin. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you read the book of Judges, and then the end of Judges is pretty interesting. Let's turn to the end of Judges. Because it's prophetic. All the prophetic books are, are, prophet, are prophetic, meaning that it's future history, uh, revealing common characteristics of the end time. And, and in Judges here, it states here in verse 25, and this is really the United States today, Britain. The whole world, as far as I'm concerned, Judges chapter twenty, uh, Judges chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-five. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel today. No real king. I mean, sure, you have Obama and the Prime Minister of Britain, but they are truly not ruling like a king of Israel would rule. Okay, 
and Judges 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, <laughs> not in God's own eyes, okay? And then if you hold your place there, there and then turn to Romans, and this is another prophecy by the Apostle Paul, or Shaul, that's how you pronounce his Hebrew name, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And I've explained many times in this program that there are 12 tribes of Israel. All the Jews are not Israel. They are a part of Israel. They're, they are the tribe of Judah. Uh, the 10 lost tribes consist of the United States, geographically, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, the countries in Northwestern Europe, and anyone who claims to believe in the Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel. You sure? Okay. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about Israel, who I just described. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have a desire to understand God. We have Bibles dis dis uh, distributed the most in those regions I told you about. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What's the righteousness of God? Psalm 119, verse 172. The commandments of God. And seeking to establish their own Christians just as much as Jews are guilty of this. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And it says, for Christ is the end, or that means... The translation there, the goal of the law, okay? In other words, he's the last Adam, and we should follow his example. Of course, people interpret this as saying, oh, the law's been done away with. That's not what it's saying. You have to look at the original um, Greek that the word in was translated from, and it means goal. So Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5, for Moses, and see, they don't read the next verse either. Uh, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, so that tells you you've got to keep the commandments. Okay, you have to keep the commandments. All right, so, and then in Judges chapter 21, which is a prophecy, in those days, and in these days today, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The king of Israel is coming, folks. <laughs> the Messiah, Yeshua. And when he comes, I guarantee you that everyone will not do right in his own eyes anymore. They better do it his way or else flames, you know, uh, you'll be tossed in a lake of fire. And he's not going to do it right away. He's going to give you plenty of opportunities. And if you just prove to him you just don't, you just want to do it your way, then he's going to be away with you in a way, uh, lake of fire. Anyway, uh, Judges chapter 13, starting in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zor of the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. But behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
And the Philistines, of course, were people that were around them. And I just read to you in the book of Judges that God stated, which is a prophecy for today, as well as it was back then, that you should not be making any agreements with the people around the land. And they did, and that's why God stated, again, let's turn there, because this is a very significant thing for you to understand here. Um, Verse 2 of Judges, chapter 2, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. He's not going to drive the Palestinians away from the Jews today. That's their responsibility. They got the military uh, capability of doing that. They can blast those. I don't want them to blast them, and God doesn't either. But if they don't obey, that's what they're commanded to do. You know, that's what they're commanded to do. Drive them out. You know, uh, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and they are thorns. Boy, the Palestinians are thorns in the sides of Israel today. And their God shall be a snare to you, and they are. They have the Muslim mosque there, and they have what they think is the third most holy site, or whatever it is, you know, uh, in their religion. And it's all uh, a unholy counterfeit of Judaism. All other religions are like that. Uh, they try to mimic the true religion. The true religion is Judaism the way Christ practiced it on the earth. That's the true religion. That's why he says salvations of the Jews. And that's why Paul said that even with the oral tradition of the Jews, it, it has an advantage even though some of those oral traditions go against the law of God. And when they go against the law of God, I'm like a Karite. I don't believe it. Okay? So a Karite is one of the various sects of Judaism then. And they don't, if they embrace Jewish tradition, but if that Jewish tradition misinterprets Scripture, they don't go by their tradition to interpret the Scripture. They go by what the Bible says. And that is a big difference between a Karite Jew and an Orthodox Jew or a Reformist or a Conservative Jew. I think Reformists don't even go by the oral uh, law, but uh, I know Conservatives do. And when the Conservatives and Orthodox Jews uh, go by what the rabbis state and it contradicts Scripture, then that's wrong. That's wrong. And uh, that's what me and my wife have learned being in this uh, Jewish class, and my wife is like, no more, you know, and I can understand because uh, they, it's hard to sit in a Jewish class and listen to people that deny that Jesus is the Messiah when you know and you have every proof in the world that they are, that Jesus is the Messiah. And I think the biggest problem that Jews have with understanding that Jesus is the Messiah is that thanks to Catholics and Protestants, uh, Jesus is is taught to be someone who broke his father's law, the Torah, and that he nailed it to the cross. And so, you know, I don't blame the Jews for being a little apprehensive in regards to that. But what they have to understand is just because Jesus is taught incorrectly among most Christian groups, that he did away with his father's law, and he kept the law so you don't have to, which is a big lie. Um, that doesn't mean that Jesus is the Messiah. There's so much proof in the Old Testament alone 
to prove that he's a Messiah. And their, and their biggest, well, how can God become a man? Well, he has become a man. It's, it's revealed in the Bible that he became a man. He 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 came to the earth as a man in, in a number of situations. So, and then I think that what well, they don't understand either, you know, Yeshua calls himself the Word of God. That was that's what makes him God. He's the Word of God, and he states that he has a God too, and his God is the Father. But Christ is God too because he's a part of the Father. Just like a son is a part of his father, right? Because the son came from his father, right? Well, Yeshua stated that he came from his father. That's what makes him God. And like my father, he's a man, right? I came from him, right? That makes me a man too. Same analogy. Christ is of the God kind, but he's not the top God. He said it himself. My father's greater than me. I have a God too. But he's he's God too. He's of the God kind. God means Elohim in Hebrew and it means mighty one. He's a mighty one. But he's not the mightiest one. That's the way I would explain it to anybody. That's what makes Yeshua God. A lot of Christians think that Jesus is on equal par with God as far as authority. No, he's not. He's not the top God with the top authority. He's he even said it himself. But he's still God. I mean, I know it may be hard to understand that, but when you think about it, it makes sense. A husband and wife's uh, role is patterned after, uh, it says the head of the Messiah is God, and the head of every man is the Messiah, and then the head of every uh, woman is the man, right? Well, the man and woman's relationship is patterned after the Messiah and God's relationship. All right? Um, what makes a man greater than a woman is the fact that he has authority over the woman. That's it. Everything else is equal. Okay? As far as them both being human beings, both having the opportunity to uh, be in, the, in God's kingdom, etc. Christ and God the Father are equal, but not in authority. Okay? So that that's the way to understand that. Okay. Back to the story of Samson here. And Samson was a unique human being, I'm telling you. Anyway, Judge chapter 13, verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God. So this is what happened. The angel went to the woman first. Okay, And then the woman, because obviously she was very submissive to her husband, obviously, verse verse 6, then the woman came and told her husband, okay, who I read to you earlier, you, a woman should be under the authority of her husband. You can't get away from that, women. If you want to get away from that, then, you know, be my guest. Okay, but you can't get under that. Uh, and that's what the women's liberation movement has tried to do. Um... A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. This is a case where God appeared as a man again. And this course, whenever God does that, is the word of God, or Jesus, in his pre-existent form. 
Anyway, a man came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drinking, and eat nothing unclean, for the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So he wasn't supposed to drink any wine at all to the day of his death. Verse 8, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us. Now, see, this is the man. The man prayed to God, okay? After his wife told him this, he needed confirmation. So what he did, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as he sat in the field. But he came to the woman first. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly, and here we go again. She submitted to her husband. She said, wait a minute, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't have my husband involved in this. It's a good woman, very good woman. No wonder he chose this woman to birth Samson. And she was a very good woman. And she realized what a marriage was all about is is being one with your mate, and you include your mate with some, uh, with you include your mate with everything. So she didn't want to just you know where's my husband you know, but but Manoah her husband was not with her. So the woman ran quickly. She ran quickly to her and told her husband, "Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me." And Manoah rose and went after his wife, and came to the man and said to him, "Are you the man who spoke to this woman?" And he said, I am. Interesting that he said, I am. Anyway, verse 12. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or See, he's commanding the man to make sure that she obeys what he told her. So that this is this is interesting, folks. If you really take a look at this, you know this kind of explains the, the the husband and wife relationship. If you really take a look at this here, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, "Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful." So he's commanding her, "You better make sure your wife do what I tell you to do." Okay. She may not eat of anything that comes from the wine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink. And this is Yeshua that she's talking to in this pre-existing form here. Or eat anything. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So he commanded the man to make sure that you make sure your wife does what I tell her to do. Verse 15, And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the, and the angel of the Lord said to Noah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering... And offered to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Verse 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord. And that's another name for the Messiah. The angel of the Lord. Or the messenger of the Lord. Okay. If you look at uh, Malachi chapter 3. It tells you that. And uh, what is your name? So that when your words come true we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him. Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? So that gives you a hint there who this is here. Verse 19, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it, offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, 
and Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. You know, I read this all the time. I'm like, if, they, if their faces fell to the ground, they'd be smashed. But I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, what it means is that they were very humble, and they just laid their faces to the ground, verse 21. Anyway, there'd be a bunch of cracked faces as uh, Anyway, verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and, and a grain offering at our hands. Or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the Lord and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menahadan between Zohar and Estoah. So this is a very interesting story of uh, Samson. And in the context of this story, it kind of explains the husband and wife's uh, relationship. Uh, the husband being over the wife and the wife being submissive and how they, how they should communicate to one another. Uh, when something like this happens, when when the Lord, if you're fortunate enough for the Lord to come to you and visit you, so that's a pretty interesting story. Now, uh, in context of this, we have 29 minutes left. Um, let's turn to some renewed covenant uh, agreement uh, scriptures. Uh, first of all, let's take a look at what God says about the marriage relationship. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, one of my favorite scriptures, especially with the climate of homosexuality and gayness uh, going around in this country right now. They just approve uh, same-sex couples in Illinois and, you know, gay folks jump up and down like that's the best news in the world, you know. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea uh, which is the West Bank today, behind or beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife. So there's no doubt that he's talking about marriage, because how can you have a wife unless you're married, right? Because you have people saying, well, he's not, not talking about a uh, marriage. Yes, he is. He said wife. Wife is a part of a marriage relationship. So he's talking about marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. That's a Jewish idiom for marriage. One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So he said it again to make sure you understand what he's talking about, okay? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And I tell you right now, women or men that are listening to this, if you have a problem with that statement, you have a problem with God, okay? Because if you're married, God doesn't look at you as two individuals. He looks at you as a team. Now, we all understand the concept of team when it comes to basketball and football and all that. But for some funny reason, a lot of us don't seem to understand team in regards to a family or, more specifically here, a marriage. 
All right. Whatever, therefore, God has joined. So God joins two people together, or should be anyway. Let not man separate. And this is a prophecy, folks, because people are trying to destroy the marriage relationship today. And here's my discussion again about homosexuality. I'll try to simplify it. There's no way that it can naturally be done, naturally be done, maybe artificially done, but there's no way that two men or two women can produce children. Now, I know they're trying to do that now. They're trying to... But see, the way for them to do it, they still have to take from an embryo or a sperm and do it. But they're trying to do it. All right? But it cannot be done naturally, only artificially, meaning man tampering with it. Okay? So I guess what I'm trying to say, common sense should tell anyone that being gay is wrong and illogical. And I don't want to hear these fluff stories about Oh, I was born gay. You're not born gay. No one's born gay. Okay, we're born in a sin, okay? But no one is born gay. When you when you become gay, in a lot of cases it's because you're not raised properly. Uh you are in an environment that influences you to be gay. All right, you're around people that influence you to be gay. Every person adapts to their environment. And and if your environment encourages that kind of activity, you will be gay. You will be, guaranteed. So um, this is one CNN news guy. He was uh, molested. Uh, he busted out and told everybody his business. So I guess it's no wrong. It's not wrong for me talking about it. But uh, he he said that he was molested by a male. But he said, I was born gay. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if you were molested over and over again, as he was, but a male, well, no wonder he's gay. No wonder he's gay. And this is Don Lemon. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's not gossip. He volunteered that information. So I'm just repeating it. But uh, we need to pray for him. You know, because I, I, I didn't know. I, I kind of suspected perhaps he may be gay because he had certain mannerisms. But uh, he only he confirmed it. You know, and uh feel sorry for him. But he needs to repent of that and he needs to uh realize that his behavior is wrong according to the scriptures. Because he does not say here that a man and a woman is one flesh or or marriage. But anyway, and this is what Christ said, because a lot of people say, Well that's old testament, old testament. Well I'm just show I'm showing you what Christ is saying here. Matthew 19, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, and you know definitely just talking about marriage because he's talking about divorce. Divorce is the uh, opposite of marriage. Okay. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I said to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and that includes all kinds of immorality, pornography, Adultery, bestiality, etc., etc., homosexuality, etc. That's sexual immorality or the wrong uses of sex. And marries another, commits adultery. The disciple said to them, As such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, 
Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. These are people who can't reproduce. And they are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So he's saying that you don't have to be married. The Jews incorrectly teach that, that you must be married. You know, well, there was a, I think there, wasn't there a prophet in Israel that was not married or commanded not to marry? Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah didn't have a wife. So obviously, you know, that that's a general rule for most, but but there are exceptions to that. You know, it's not necessary for you to be married. But the majority of people do marry. Okay, that's the majority of population marries. But there are a few people that, you know, not not for that. You know, they're, they're, their life is so active and busy and that they don't have time for that. So, um, but those are very, very few people on the earth. Most people marry. Okay, so this should be pretty clear from Scripture that Jesus did not say that two men and two women can marry and that they're one flesh, okay? Um, but people want to argue with that. It only proves Romans chapter 1 that when you get into this homosexuality thing that you're not thinking straight and you need to repent. And I'm saying that as nice as I can. Um, now, as far as the assembly of God, uh, we are considered a priesthood. Let's turn to First Peter. Since we're talking about priests today, let's look at that scripture here. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. He states this about his uh, believers today. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own procession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's talking about Gentiles. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The majority of people that, that live in the United States and those other areas are not Gentiles, folks. Uh, I know you may think you are, but you are part of Israel, uh, of the tribes. If you're part of one of the tribes, you're not a Gentile. A Gentile is someone who is not of those tribes, okay, an African, okay, not not a South African. A lot of South Africans have Israelitish blood, but any any like Sudan, you know, or a Chinese person, or whatever, okay, and, and they start to become a believer in Yeshua, then they're no longer a Gentile. I mean, they, I mean, they're a Gentile, but they become attached to the Commonwealth of Israel. Okay, so uh, they may not be part of Israel as far as genetics, but spiritually, they become a part of Israel. Okay, so just want to explain that to you. All right, so um, if there's no one that wants to call me, I'll give it a minute. <laughs> My number is uh, 213-325-3434. That's 213-325-3434. My son's getting up because he doesn't think anyone's going to call. Uh, <laughs> he's probably right, but let's see. Give it about a minute, and if you don't want to talk, then uh, we'll, God willing, I'll speak to you next week. Well, you know, 
truth hurts people, but hey, let me read you the scripture to you. You know, when Christ comes back, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. It said, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord. Oh, that cat's going crazy. Anyway. There were loud loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and on the words of time and the resurrection, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So at this time, there's going to be a lot of destroyers of the earth. And and uh, what I wanted to uh, read here, was it? Oh, the nations raged, but your wrath came. Oh, okay. Well, in the King James Version, it says that the nations were angry when he came. Okay, so that tells you the mental state of most people at this point. Uh, they, You would think people would be jumping up and down worldwide that, that uh, Jesus is coming back, but they won't be. So that tells you right there there's something wrong. That's why I'm not surprised that people aren't going to call me or whatever because people don't typically embrace the truth. That's just the way it is. And then uh, the two witnesses, uh, this is interesting too. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, it talks about two people that's going to preach the gospel around the world. It's not going to be done by any ministry. That's for sure. But uh, it's going to be done by them, and miraculously. And in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 11, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, not years, some people, I see Jesus that and say, well, let's talk about years. No, it's days, literal 24-hour days, three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze uh, at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, probably through uh, modern technology, uh, those who dwell on the earth, that means everyone who was alive, will rejoice over them. So everyone in the world, except, of course, the believers, uh, the majority, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents uh, this could be happening around Christmas time. Who knows? All right? Because those two prophets have been a torment. The truth is torment to people who don't want to obey God. Okay? And there's many people that believe it's torment. So I guess I'm preaching torment to those who uh, don't embrace the truth. Okay? Because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Okay? So, yeah, I guess I am torment to you or anyone else that's preaching like me. It's torment to you if you don't want to embrace the truth. And what is the truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. The, the truth is the law of God, the Torah. Also, Yeshua is the living embodiment of, embodiment of truth. So anyway, um, looks like no one's going to call in. So um, you're always welcome to do that. Uh, you can email me if you want a private conversation. Uh, you can email me and I'll give you my number, and uh, we'll talk. But uh, God willing, I'll be available next week. So may God bless and keep you.
and uh, hopefully I'll be speaking to you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 